This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, crack open the rum, light up the cigars. You can still go to Cuba. And Terrafugia. Flying cars are closer than you think. Also, the NTSB is happy with the GA safety record. And speaking of the NTSB, we get the preliminary report on the Halliday crash. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. All right, David, uh, welcome back from Thanksgiving. And a happy a good Thanksgiving one. to you. Yeah, it's the holiday rush begins. Oh, I'm already tired thinking about it. Uh, yeah, I did my I did my due diligence for the economy yeah. from Friday. <laughs> good. Yeah, while it's a little bit lighter. But I did some flying over the uh, oh, holiday fantastic. weekend. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Anything good? What'd you do? Uh, I went out in the 172 that we had just to get a little practice in, did a little cross country. Nice. And I'm getting, a, I'm in the process of being checked out in the Cessna 182. All right. So I did some practice yesterday that's a really nice aircraft fantastic good 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 you also uh talked to our guest this week so tell us about her aaron connor is miss vermont and she is also a pilot we talked to aaron a few weeks ago she has some interesting uh, background how she got started in aviation and we'll hear all about it and she's really gung-ho for the next generation of aviators as well awesome all right so looking forward to her in the meantime let's talk about cuba right Uh, um this would be a great time of the year to go it would be any yeah. time in the winter time is better to be down south. Yeah, that's true. Right. Um, so it's there's some confusing information that that's come out in the past couple of weeks. You've probably seen it on the national news. Certainly, you've seen it in the aviation media. The bottom line is, you can still go. You can go to Cuba now, but it's a little bit trickier than before. Yeah, it and, is. And you've been there. Yeah, we went actually about this time last year, and we went with Eric Norber from Cuba Handling. Okay. And. Basically, you'd have to do that now. So you need to be sponsored, basically. Yeah. So they still have that people-to-people category. That's the one that kind of opened up travel and allowed GA to go and, right. and others. But instead of you being able to book your own trip and go on your own time and do and basically meet that treasury regulation on your own, uh-huh. you have to do it under the guise of a some sort of certified or licensed or, or approved, let's say, uh, trip operator. So they have more experience in Cuba. They know how to get around and they actually are, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, they're sort of licensed, if you will, yeah. by the by the country. Yeah, they're blessed, right? So now I think that's good and bad. It's good for GA. The opportunities are still there. You can still fly yourself. You should. It's not a hard flight. It's pretty close to Florida. We're it talking, is. what, 90 miles? Yeah, it's awesome. The, the hard part is if you wanted to take the airlines and go down, I think those because it's going to be a little bit restricted, we're already seeing airlines pulling back. Yeah, but, and their price competition is, is probably going to go away to yeah. a degree, so it'll be more expensive. Yeah. Now, I've been to Cuba as well. That's right. And you've been there. I've been there. And um, it is truly a fascinating place to be. Very it's, cool it's, place. And for people who are photographically uh, interested, it's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of historical buildings there. It's just a really neat place. It is very cool. And so, I mean, I think the, the thing that we discovered even a year ago was that Although you could go as a tourist, okay, <laughs> fine print here. 
technically you could not go as a tourist. You could you could go Those if you're learning to some people. education yes. type experience, right? right? But it looks very much like a tourist sort of experience. It's a cultural tourism sort of thing, right? Yeah, sort of an exchange. Yeah, so you could do that before. You could book your own hotel and everything else, but. I'm telling you, it, there were lots of horror stories because they just weren't set up in the internet economy like right. we are and everything else where it's like you'd book it, you get down there, there's no hotel. I saw people cheering on the street that they found a place to stay. Yeah, I bet that's common. Yeah, I think it is. And so if you go with a tour operator, it's A little like, bit less to worry about. Yeah, you're going to have a better time anyway, I think. Yeah. Plus, you're going to go with like-minded pilots and, yeah. and, and aviators and, and really get through the regulations and a lot of the rules and stuff. It would really help in the first place to have someone that knows the ropes. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So, uh, moving on to uh, from an old country to new tech. Uh, terra. Uh, okay, here we go. Terra Fugia. Terra Fugia. <laughs> so we've been hearing about the uh, Terra Fugia flying car for a pretty good while, Ian. I don't know uh, uh, when they started, but I'm guessing it's like over ten years ago. Yeah, it has been a while. Yeah, 2006. So the most recent news, and this is discussed earlier in the summer, but we have recent news that. Geely Holding, and I hope I pronounced that right, and that's not Geely Holding, <laughs> out, of, out of China. They announced the uh, completion of the acquisition back uh, November 13th, just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And and it's you know subject to the regulation, approval, things like that. But we're looking at the long-awaited flying car being closer to reality. That's the bottom line. Yeah. So what's interesting about this deal, you might be like, okay, well, so are they going to have flying cars in China, or how does this work? Because it's a Chinese uh, holding company. The really interesting part of this deal, though, is they also own Volvo. Right. Yes. So this gives them, a lack of a better pun, gives them a foothold <laughs> in, in uh, automobile and aviation technology at the same time. Yeah. And uh, and Uber, as we know, has really been into this whole idea of like flying cars right. and VTOL and everything else. They've worked with Volvo. And so you can start to see things kind of come together here where Terrafugia could play a part in this whole, you know, personal intra-city transportation mix. Yeah, it kind of all comes together. Yeah. And, and you can see, the as we were chatting about it before the podcast, the synergy yeah, that's of right. all this. Um, what's interesting is that the Terrafugia transition, this is the, the folding wing flying car, mm-hmm. the 1,800-pound airplane, which uh, which we helped support a um, an exemption, FAA exemption for yeah. this yeah. Uh, two-seater. And so it's going to let you, you know, travel by road to an airport, un- unfold the wings, and, and fly as a light sport aircraft. That's the whole idea of, hmm. of the two-seater. Yeah, sure. And so the four-seater takes it a step further. They're hoping to have a vertical takeoff and landing four-seat version, and their drone is uh, basically... Uh, I guess it's something that we're looking forward to seeing the TFX in the, the mid 20s. Yeah. Uh, the year, the mid 20s. And this could be, <laughs> like you said, with Uber, this could really be the technology that gets us into the George Jetson age, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different companies now competing for this, and they've people have flown scale models, and it seems like they really are on the cusp from a technology standpoint of being able to make this happen. Yeah. You know, whether or not. It's going to like blanket the skies and cities, and people are going to catch on. I mean, that's that's a whole other question, right? And I think it's worth uh, thinking about the airspace situation. Oh too. my gosh. It's probably where you were fixing to go with Could that. Could you imagine New York City, like you know, the amount of cabs they have on the ground, and just double that and put them in the air? <laughs> the it's air. like, oh my gosh. But it could like places like Atlanta and L.A. and Washington yeah. D.C., where there's really tons of traffic on the interstates going into and out of those major cities. I could see that there could be some some movement here, something that might help the regular transportation grid yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, of course, I think you just fly a helicopter to all those places and, you know. I agree with you. <laughs> You've got access to a helicopter. Yeah. But now the thing about if you don't have a helicopter. Yes. And the thing about living in a big city, you know, something like this, if you had these kind of you know, hired aerial taxis, if you will, mm-hmm. then I could see that there's a whole realm of transportation possibilities and infrastructure when yeah. you think about it. Because yeah. when you go to an airport right now, you get to the airport, and yes, there are aircraft there, there are pilots there, but there's also malls that you can buy stuff. Yeah, You can buy food. You can go hither and yonder. So there could be this whole new marketplace opening up and a lot of jobs that go with that too yeah. well and you know what it's like if if in 10 years no one none of us are going to be driving our cars anyway you know it's not a huge leap to then say well yeah fine i'll get into VTOL and i'll go across the city and the machine will do it all for me and it's it's yeah. you know so it's it's entirely plausible i think now will we still need pilots or yeah. are these going to be autonomous i don't know initially yeah 
But uh, 25, 50 years from now, probably not. Well, now Boeing says for the next 20 years, we're, we have a huge demand for pilots and mechanics mm-hmm. as, as the world is right now. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just looking on, you know, looking at some TV shows recently and there, you know, detailed the new the Dreamliner yeah. and the new aircraft that have come on board in the past few years, commercial aircraft. And it just doesn't seem like the traveling public is throttling back at all. No. If nothing. They're more on the go. No. And in fact, I mean, we just saw, was it last week or the week before, um, Airbus has is, is got this whole research facility now to have first one pilot and then no pilots. Right. And they one, say, right. That's as right. A result Going to the, one pilot and then none. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. And you would think it's like, oh, to save the airline's money and everything else well maybe but they say it's driven by the pilot shortage that it's like they they're looking for a technological solution which makes sense for airbus because they've been all about that anyway right. you know technology driving the machine but really pretty incredible stuff it's neat stuff on horizon and uh and i i really would love to see this terrafugia flying i mean i haven't seen it yeah but it would be a cool thing and and gosh man it could just bring it could sweep a lot of other people up in it yeah absolutely know? yeah absolutely that all right, so we're going to go through a couple of safety stories here. Well, the safety segment portion of the program right. <laughs> today. Um, but this first one's going to be f- sort of fun, all right? And I'm, I'm saying fun because nobody, nobody was killed in this. You may remember a couple of years ago, a guy flying an L-39 through a Colorado Canyon, less than 500 feet, hit a wire, okay? Which you would think— Like an electrical wire? Yeah, like a power line. Okay. You would think instant crash, right? You would think. No. Turns out, a little bit of damage— Goes home, lands, uh-huh. everything's fine, right? He loses his certificate for six months. Well, I could see that happening. You could see that. <laughs> yeah. In the albatross going yeah. probably 400 miles an hour, 500 feet above the ground. Yeah. Yep, yep. Well, it turns out, I love this. Here we go. Turns out he sliced the line, went onto the road. Uh-huh. Okay. And so he's flying less than 500 feet. There's a highway. It's a canyon. Okay. So okay. now we've got a, a congested area. Yeah. Um, the the line falls on people's cars oh, on no. the road. Oh no! One of those drivers who's just minding his own business uh, sues the power company because the line fell because the car? line fell on his car. Probably freaked him out. Probably freaked him out. Yeah. He he says, Avwebs um, has a story on this and it's pretty funny. He they don't mean it to be funny. I think it's funny. Um, the guy said that the he lost feelings in his hands and was terrified by the mishap and further. That this is an L thirty nine. You've been in one of these. You know I how have. loud they are. It's awesome airplane. <laughs> he said his hearing was damaged by the noise of the aircraft when it powered out of the canyon. Well, he has very sensitive ears. He must have sensitive <laughs> ears, and he must think he's looking for deep pockets somewhere. Is what something, I'm guessing. Something. All right. All right. So the story gets better. All right. How could it get better than that? I like this. That's, of course, somebody's going to sue, right? <laughs> right? Well, so now the power company's coming at the pilot, um, saying, which, by the way. Former Marine pilot, so not as crazy as it sounds that he would be flying low because he's been trained for it. Okay. We talked about that last time, right? right? But he lost his certificate and everything else. Now, the pilot is saying, I don't know, man. Don't look at me. Uh, the line wasn't marked. It wasn't marked with those <laughs> with a spherical bar- balls. Yeah. yeah, so he's uh-huh. like, hey, you didn't mark your line. I hit it. Uh, yeah. It seems like that's your problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that is kind of a funny story now that you think of it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um. I don't know. If you hit a line, do you think you'd have the gusto to then turn around and be like, no, no, it wasn't me? No, but I'm not a Marine pilot. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> or or an Albatross pilot. That's right. But I like the gusto of that. I do. I uh-huh. know. I like that. Yeah. I like that. How do you I, think that's going to end? Um, I don't think that's a very convincing argument, personally. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Man. Uh, but I... Uh, you know, I mean, you give the guy credit for trying. It's like, you know, you put the orange balls on it. I don't hit it. But, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we have continued good news in the NTSB That's right. department. That's <laughs> right. So this is only one of many accidents that's happened. But the good news is accident rate's going down, right? The accident rate has dropped below one fatal per 100,000 flight hours in 2016. That's pretty significant, Ian. Don't that is think? significant. That's a big deal. You know, I think... When you start talking about the technologies that's available to us now, whether it's moving maps, right. terrain, uh, traffic, weather, it's like it seems like those things are really having an impact. And you, you were just talking about this a couple of uh, podcast episodes ago when we talked about some of the um, different devices that we can get in the aircraft now as part mm-hmm. of the FAA's more touchy-feely uh, move, the angle of attack indicators. Yeah, for safety issues, I think that's a great thing to have. Yep. That would help pilots out a lot. And you're right. I mean, uh, we have uh, traffic and we have better weather. 
mm-hmm. um, technology, even on our you know handhelds. Yep. So all those things, maybe, maybe that's what came together in 2016 to help lower this. Yeah. And, of course, people uh, looking at the AOPA ASI safety seminars. Yes, of course. Can't ed- forget get, to talk about those. And getting educated at our fly-ins and things like that as well. Yeah. So it's, it is really, you know, and I think it's important to remember, this is a rate. So this is not total number of accidents. Right. This is based on how much flying we're doing. Well, based on the flight hours and how many people are flying. Yeah, right. and how often. So in hard numbers... Um, in 2015, there were 416 aviation fatalities. Okay. Um, in 2016, there were 412. So even though the uh, the flying, I believe the flying rate went up in those two years, but the number of deaths went down. Uh-huh. Uh, the bad news of this is 94% of those fatalities were in GA. So we've got a ways to go there. We do. Yep. Um, amazing. Guess how many, and you know this because it's like we follow the news, right? Guess how many airline fatalities there have been in recent years? I'm going to guess that there have been in U.S. airlines in like in the past couple of years. I'm going to guess like zero. Do you remember the last one? Was it the was it the New York crash? I want to say it was Colgan. It was 2009. Yeah, yeah. And isn't then, that phenomenal? That's a pretty good while ago. Yeah. And if you recall, the fallout from that is actually still being heard today. Oh my gosh, big time! Because right now, some of the uh, legislation that's being battered about at, at the House and the mm-hmm. Senate. Right now, they're all referring back to some of those, uh, some of the piloting requirements yeah. that changed because of that accident. Yeah. yeah. In fact, you know, it used to be it's like there would be so many accidents that maybe one or two a year would come through as really important. We'd have a rule change. We'd yeah. learn something from it. Right. But it's like Colgan, you know, I mean, massive regulatory changes for what, you know, I, I mean, I hate to say it, it sounds a little harsh, but for what would have been a quote-unquote run-of-the-mill accident, you know, 10 years before that. But now yeah. it stands out as being a major event because they're just so infrequent now. Well, now, it seemed like at that time, um, and I'm a little fuzzy on the details, but I know that the, the pilots were fatigued. They had flown yeah. a lot. Yeah. And so some of the regulatory changes had to do with your time on service. Yeah, that, that right. I mean, the biggest one I think that's that's been an issue and, in fact, is really hurting the industry now is that, you know, 1,500 hours? Yeah, 1,500 hours hours but um but you're right fatigue came up as a major contributing right. factor and now yeah, the, the training and the regionals changed uh, changed their basically the way they did business after that yeah they had to yeah and that's still affecting folks now they're just now entering the industry and that's mm-hmm. that might be one reason why we're seeing some of these enticements to folks that are just following that career path yeah and uh the regionals want to get these people they want to get pilots on board they want to make sure they stay with them yep so they're offering them bonuses higher salaries, yep. but we're a little bit behind the curve on that. As you mentioned, uh, with Airbus, look into the future, yeah. you know, because of that, you know, referring back to the pilot shortage right now. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that's a bit of a digression, but the, the good news there is, you know, less than, you mentioned it, less than one fatal accident per 100,000 hours, first time in 50 years that's been like that. So that's, that's, that's just great. phenomenal. Well, let's hope it continues to go down and yeah. I hope that we continue to uh, look at those safety courses and think about that and use some of these new devices as best as we can. Yeah. So unfortunately, one that will be added to those ranks in 2017 is the Icon crash. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, Roy Halliday died flying his, his new Icon A5. One thing about the Icon is that it has a data recorder. Not it every does. airplane does. This one does. And and the, if, if I recall, the folks who were going to buy those aircraft that had lined up to buy them to begin with were not real super happy about having the flight recorder on board, although yeah. other aircraft do already anyway. Yeah. yeah, they may not know it, but yeah, they do. But and this this might have helped in this case. It did. And so we saw that, I know, with their accident that they had out in California with, with their folks. Yeah. Um, but this one, yeah, it's like the NTSB prelim came out, and they have very detailed data on exactly what happened during that flight. They have it from uh, the recorders in the aircraft. They also have pretty good eyewitnesses mm-hmm. on the ground, and I think most of us have seen at least one of the videos or yeah. photos. Yeah. Uh, because we do live in this uh, information age right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. so we saw that uh, basically they go through kind of the, what happened during the day, took off from a lakeside home, um, the weather was good, climbed to 2,000 feet, went, uh, I guess, to get out to the coast, uh-huh. descended over the coast, uh, once over the water, Flew as low as 11 feet at 92 knots. That's pretty fast, pretty that's low and fast. Yep, 
Yeah, for right. that airplane especially. It's at the pretty yep. much at the limits of that airplane yep. and low. Yeah. And then the other thing that I that that you really focused on and you're absolutely right about this is came at one point came within 75 feet of some of some houses on the beach. Which is a a, a rule that you are not supposed to yeah. you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, pretty clear. Rule. So, you need yeah. to be a, uh, more than 500 feet away from people or or homes like that, structures like that. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was interesting to me is that, you know, there are so many people on the ground that kind of witness that. And then when you look at the aircraft, and we talked a little, little bit about this last podcast, that it was designed so well, the Icon airplane itself, but the wings are what? The wingspan is what, 30 feet across, 35 feet, something like that? Yeah. And if you're 11 feet off the deck and you turn, say you turn left, yeah. and that wing is like 15 feet long, I mean, just do the math. Four yeah. feet of that wing is in the water. Yeah, yeah. You'd have to be very careful at that point. Yeah. Very and careful. I, yeah, and I think Richard McSpadden, our, our ASI, you know, safety chief basically says when you're low like that and, and he's a thunderbird pilot leader yeah and he said you know they were trained for that kind of flight and you're always thinking of the what if possibilities and you're always looking outside the aircraft you really are not looking inside the aircraft because yeah. you need to keep keep aware of your time to impact i think is how he phrased that yeah in fact he has a great editorial you got to go check this out online um just go to aopa.org and search icon or, or richard mcspadden you'll you'll find it but um he had a. I, I was fascinated by his commentary. Spot on, this. on. Yeah, because he had a, um, a lot of really interesting things to say just about the airplane he's flown it, uh, but also about kind of the culture of Icon and the fact that they've got this military culture and how does that apply to GA and maybe yeah. it doesn't and and how if you're going to do low level flying how there are safe ways to do it if you're trained pro- safer ways uh, to do it if you're trained properly. Sure. sure. So it was it was great. Really fascinating it, stuff. It is it is good. I'm glad you brought that up Ian. And um you know go back to um to to um Halliday himself. You know he had about 15 hours in the new A5. He was really proud of that aircraft and I think that he might have had um he might have felt like he had more experience than he really did. He might have felt safer because the airplane feels safer. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, you're at the edge of that envelope yep. when you're that low and, and going kind of fast in an airplane. It, doesn't, it just doesn't have a huge engine in it. So yeah. to pull up or pull out, you know, you, it, it was already pretty much at its limit. Yeah, you got it. Yep. Yeah, well, hopefully we won't have to talk about that kind of thing much anymore. Um, it's, uh, you know, as we've said, just a terrible accident and, and bad for the company. And, you know, we'll see kind of what happens in the fallout in the next couple of weeks. But um, it's a tough one to come back from. Um, happier news. Looking forward to the future. You talked to Miss Vermont, and she's got a really interesting focus. I did talk to Miss Vermont. Erin was great. She was so sweet to me on the uh, on the Skype call that we had. And you know what? She is an aviator. She flew her own self to the Miss America pageant, and um, and it's a real fascinating how she got involved in flying uh, to begin with, and yeah. we are going to hear all about how Aaron Connor got involved in flying. So I'm going to welcome to the Hangar Talk podcast, Aaron Connor, Miss Vermont 2017, who is also a private pilot. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, thanks so much for having me today, David. I read a little bit about your aviation adventures, and uh, and we're so proud of you for representing aviation uh, and also uh, for your Miss Vermont honors. Tell us a little bit about how you got started in aviation. Sure. Well, it started in 2013. When I was a senior in high school, a college here in Vermont, uh, about an hour away from my house called Vermont Technical College, offered what's called a dual enrollment program for high school seniors. And it's where you can complete your first year of college and the credits that you get count towards your high school diploma. So it's kind of like combining your senior year and your first year of college together. And the best part about this program, what it, it was 100% free. So naturally knowing how expensive higher education is, I had to jump on that opportunity. And I've always kind of had a familiarity with aviation and airplanes with my grandfathers in World War II. So I just kind of loved, loved learning about them and the history of them. And so when I saw that aviation and pilot technology was one of the majors, I was like, you know, this is kind of cool. I can kind of cruise by my senior year of high school, 
not really have a lot of responsibility, um, and I can just kind of study the history of aviation in more depth, right? It's kind of going to be an easy year for me, and it's going to be a fun year. You thought it was going to be easy. I bet you had uh, uh, other realities in, in store. Oh, my goodness. So I, I get the curriculum, and I was like, hey, Mom, check this out. I'm going to be studying the history of aviation, right? So I get to my first class, and the, the class is literally called Flying 101. And I was like, oh, great. We're going to learn about aerodynamics and how an airplane actually flies. And I raised my hand. I was like, so what does this class entail, right, to my first instructor? And he goes, oh, great. We have a volunteer. And I was like, a volunteer for what? And he goes, oh, you're going to take the first flight lesson. And I was definitely scared of heights. Um, I didn't actually have any interest in flying the airplane itself. But I was, I, I took the opportunity and I was like, all right, well, maybe my grandfather, you know, I can tell him all about what I did on this first day of class. And I got to tell you, David, when I got behind that wheel and we took off and saw beautiful Lake Champlain in Vermont, I fell in love with it. And I knew that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I knew that's something I really wanted to focus on throughout my career. And, and my passion really now is just aviation and flying. Well, Aaron, that is a fascinating way to get started in aviation. I know like so many other people with a, a subject like that, uh, an aviation uh, course, they, they might have thought it would, it would be a pushover. Uh, it is kind of ironic that you raised your hand to ask a question and they called on you to do your first lesson. That's right. I kind of I made a target for myself. Well, think about that first uh, flight. And you and I actually, I'll, I'm going to let our podcast listeners know, we spoke last week. We had a little technical snafu, so we're, we're uh, revisiting the subject again. But tell me a little bit about what it felt like when you lifted off the ground in Vermont that time when you were in a, a small airplane. I can't even put into words really the feeling. Um, it was an adrenaline rush. I was, you know, I felt, you know, I'm a pretty tall person. I'm five nine, um, and I always throughout my whole life was considered like really tall and pretty big. But you know, I felt really small. I was in, you know, I was in a small airplane, but I was surrounded by all these big airplanes. And when I got behind that wheel and we lifted off, I felt like, oh my God, there's this whole other world from the sky that I can kind of explore. And the feeling just made me felt, just made me feel so empowered. Um, and the fact that it was a challenging, it had its ups and downs while I was studying throughout that year, but that's what made it so much more interesting for, for me was, you know, there was a challenge, but I kind of pushed my way through. Like I said, I was scared of heights. So going up that first time, I was really, really scared. But the fact that I was kind of distracted that I was actually flying the airplane the first time I was up made me kind of forget that I was scared of heights. And it made me push through that challenge. And like I said, empower myself to be part of something that's bigger than myself. Yeah. You know, a lot of people when they're at the, uh, when they're handling the controls of an airplane or even a car for that matter, um, they feel more in control and more empowered rather than being a, a passive passenger. So I totally understand that feeling. And now you, now how did the rest of the, of the, of the year go? I mean, you went through your, uh, your private, um, through the, basically you got your certificate at the end of the program, correct? Yes, I did. Yep. So I, there was, it was a year long program and the first semester was dedicated to getting your private certificate. And I did get it. I got it in December, December 29th. I remember the day. Um, and I soloed in October, October 13th. And of course, you know, we have that tradition of you cut the back of your shirt and you write on it, your solo day and your time. And, you know, that first solo that I took was, you know, it kind of brought me back to that first day I was flying of how empowered I felt. Um, here I am, you know, a 17-year-old girl surrounded by older men, actually, in their 20s and in their 30s flying. So I kind of had to push myself to be really good because, you know, there's always that stigma that there's not a lot of women in STEM and in science. So I felt like I had to be really good. And I pushed myself really hard to study. And I was flying about seven days a week. So naturally, it's kind of like riding a bike. You know, you, you don't forget how to do it because you're doing it every single day. And I'm practicing those skills. And it makes me a very meticulous um, and, and really skilled pilot. So, you know, when I, when I first got into the aviation piece, um, I was scared. I was apprehensive because I thought that, you know, these the other males in my class, my male instructor, I would kind of feel left out or not respected as an equal. But it actually wasn't that. I, I was respected. And, you know, I had a really, really talented instructor who I was able to communicate with. And that made me feel comfortable in the airplane. And it made me be able to open up to him about what I was scared about or what I was apprehensive about. But, you know, other women have not had the same opportunities that I have. And that's why I really want to focus on educating more people, especially young girls, about the opportunities that are in STEM and aviation. 
So that's what I really focus on throughout my year, and that's my platform as Miss Vermont. That is what caught my attention, the fact that you are encouraging uh, other females to follow in your footsteps as a mentor, um, basically studying science, technology, engineering, and math. Those are such key buzzwords today, uh, the STEM programs that we find around around the states. And also AOPA is a key proponent of STEM programs as well as we move forward. Tell me a little bit about how you help to uh, inspire some of the younger aviators as they study those type of STEM subjects, Erin. That's a tongue twister. It is. So my platform is called Killin, Training a New Generation of Female Scientists. And it's an education-based program where I really target middle, high schools, and really in the early elementary years, because that's where we're seeing the problem. We're seeing I mean, of course, there's a lot of contributors to the fact why there aren't more female in STEM, but we're seeing that adults are steering our young girls into these traditional gender roles instead of supporting their curiosity when they find their passions at a young age. So, like I said, I target those younger girls to kind of help educate them about the opportunities that are out there. And I find that one of the best approaches, <laughs> that's a pun, airplane pun there, but one of the best approaches is to give them that hands-on experience. So at times, you know, I can coordinate with classrooms to go out and actually go to an airport and show them what it's like to actually sit in an airplane, in those single engine airplanes. Uh And Uh when I see those kids light up, I know that I'm doing something right. And not even the fact that, you know, they might not even go in another airplane in the rest of their life, but the fact that I'm opening them and giving them that experience to see what it's like um, I would hope that at a young age I can kind of instill that in their brains and they'll remember that and they'll remember how much fun they had and what it was like to, to be behind the controls, you know, of course, on the ground, not in the air. But just giving them that experience. Because a lot of kids, the problem is they're not exposed to it. So just right. exposure to real is what I'm trying to focus on. Right, and they're not exposed to it because um, it, it is sometimes pretty costly, uh, but we do have other um, other things that are available to us and to students like scholarships and and, and mentorships and uh, local aviation programs that could help them out. Now, um, I don't want to get off track too much, but the 99s organization is a particularly good organization for potential female aviators as well as Women in Aviation International. And both of those organizations offer scholarships for women particularly. Yes, they do. And that's another thing is I I like to open them up to different paths that they could take um, in order to make it more cost effective and in order to kind of get the most knowledge that you can at once and showing them, you know, the path that I kind of took was combining my senior year of high school, my first year of college, that saved me a year's worth of tuition right there. And of course, you know, you still had to pay for the flight, but you didn't have to pay for the ground school or anything that was paid for. So just showing them different opportunities and different paths that they can take, I think is really important. So they can kind of keep their options open so they don't feel like they're stuck doing one thing. Right. And that science, technology, uh, engineering, and math is just such a great subject to learn. And to make to make things like that fun is really a key thing that will get more people involved in, in aviation. The one thing that we spoke about last week when you and I chatted on the phone was that you were a very meticulous pilot. And how did you pick up such good habits, and what do you do to keep your aviation skills sharp? Yeah, so, you know, I, I came up to this program when I was 17, like I said. And I grew up, my background was growing up on a dairy farm. So I'm a farm girl, and I, in order to be successful in this local farming industry, because, you know, there's a lot of big farms that are buying out these small family farms, is you had to be organized and you had to be disciplined. So I was one of seven, but a lot of my older siblings were out of the house. So a lot of the responsibility was on me and my other two sisters to making make sure that the family farm was operating smoothly, and that meant everyone had a responsibility and a chore. So for me, that was waking up at 4.30 in the morning, milking the cows, going to school, playing sports, coming home, feeding the calves, going to bed, rinse and repeat, right? So I was very disciplined and organized. And I think that really attributes to my work ethic and the fact that when I was going through this program, I I heard stories from people about accidents and little incidents they have. And I really listened to what they had to say because I knew, you know, you're flying an airplane and it's not a joke. You can't be messing around. You need to make sure um, you're safe. That way you can have a good flight and everyone else in the airplane safe. And that just makes for a more fun and, and better experience. So um, I think that's staying organized. And I like to make sure that I'm getting to the airport sufficiently early to make sure I have enough time to pre-flight. And for me, that's going around the airplane three different times to make sure I'm double and triple checking you know, that certain stuff. And, you know, people laugh at me and they say it takes me forever and I'm paying more because I'm renting the plane longer. But that doesn't matter to me. What matters is safety. And 
I really believe in being meticulous makes for a more skilled pilot because when you're in the air, you don't have to focus on um, anything else like, oh, did I check that? No, you can just focus on flying. A familiar uh, pre-check, a thorough pre-check really leads to a little bit more relaxed flying environment. I, I can certainly appreciate that. Well, that leads me to another uh, another question I was going to ask you about. Now, you flew yourself from uh, Vermont. Now, how do you pronounce the city that you that you flew from? Is it Bridport? So, Bridport is the town I grew up in. I actually flew out of Burlington International Airport right here in, in our city of Burlington. Okay. So, you flew from there to Atlantic City, and now you had a Piper Arrow for this trip. Um, now, a couple of things. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. A couple of things. Think about um, flying in that Piper Arrow. What did you have to do to prepare to fly that Piper Arrow? Yeah, so this is the first time I've actually ever flown um, a Piper Arrow or been in a Piper Arrow. So for me, it was kind of researching the airspeeds and, um, you know, just getting familiar, familiarizing myself with the airplane. That was a big thing for me. I'm very big into checklists and making sure, you know, heads of retractable gear, which is something I wasn't used to. Mm-hmm. So making sure I just go through those checklists um, beforehand. So I, when I'm in flight, I'm prepared um, and I kind of remember when to take them out, when to go through them, just so I'm familiar with it. So it's not like a, you know, shockwave of you're flying this brand new airplane, you don't know what you're doing, right? For me, you know, I didn't have time to fly it before, of course. I was there the morning before and we were pre flooding and everything was okay and I was reading the checklist. So for me, it was just getting familiar with the airplane and making sure I was comfortable um, so I could fly it. Well, um, that's a one step towards uh, advanced uh, uh, ratings and advanced aircraft. Now, where are you now in your in your flight training? I believe that we had talked, last time we talked, uh, You, I know you're a private pilot. Are you an instrument and commercial student? And, and where do you see yourself going from here? I am I'm an instrument student right now, um, and it's a very slow process for me. Um, with my Miss Vermont duties, and I have another full-time job, I'm at about 90 hours a week between the two. So it's a little hard to get in those flying hours right now. Um, I give up my crown in May of 2018. So once I do that, I'm really going to kind of shift my focus to flying. Um, You know, for me, it's not just making sure I'm educating people throughout my year. It's, you know, I'm going to continue this work, but I also want to make sure that I advance all of my possible um, ratings that I can, because this is something that I want to do professionally. So it's something that I, it will give me the year to kind of save up some money and it will give me the year to focus on the education piece, and then I can really transform into, um, you know, making sure I get the ratings I want. So it's going to take, a, you know, a couple months, but I'm going to stick with it. And for me, you know, it's just, it's more of, like we were saying earlier, it is costly. So for me, it's a little bit of saving up some money and making sure that I can dedicate my whole heart and soul into flying. Well, and, and you hit the nail on the head a little while ago when you said, you know, flying more and flying more often is uh, the way to go and a way to keep proficient. So I can uh, totally understand that. Now you have like well, upwards of what, like, you, well, you have dozens of appearances uh, per month. I mean, you're super, super busy. What, what's an average day like for, uh, for Miss Vermont, Aaron Connor? You know what? It's so funny. There isn't really an average day. I've learned that with being a title holder, you need to be flexible. So some days that could mean that, you know, I I have 20 appearances a month, say, right? My goal is 250 throughout the year, and I don't get paid for these. This is all voluntary. Uh So for me, it's, you know, you could be going into work, and all of a sudden um, you need to go to the Vermont Children's Hospital because there's a really sick cancer patient who just got admitted, and she's scared, and she really just wants to meet Miss Vermont. So you really need to be flexible, and that's something that I've learned to adapt to. I've learned that I really can't get on a routine because um, I'm traveling all the time. I got myself a sponsored car for the year. It says Miss Vermont, Aaron Connor on the doors. And it's really funny. I'll be driving to appearances um, a couple hours from my house, and I'll have my curlers in my hair, making sure my hair is steady. People will be taking pictures and waving. So I've been all over the state, and you know, like I said, there's no typical day, but it's we're partnered with the Children's Miracle Network. So for me, it is just a joy and an honor to go in and, and talk to sick kids. You know, it's a really humbling experience, and sometimes I even get to talk to them about aviation and flying, and you know. Look, these kids are, you know, on their deathbed, they're sick, and they all they want to do is hear about your flying stories. So for me, it's something that I bring my love of aviation to other people, and it kind of cheers them up. Well, yeah, and then uh, there are organizations that help some of the kids uh, achieve flight, and that could be mm-hmm. uh, a highlight for them. And, you know, we're, we're sorry to hear about their plight. Certainly, we wish them the best. But um, that does, in fact, uh, cheer up several folks. And I've written a little bit about that type of um, that flying. It's just very rewarding for a pilot as well. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. 
And being Mr. Mont um, and being a pilot, it, it, it's the best job in the whole world. I wish I could do this for the rest of my life. Well, I hope, you, I hope you're able to do it, at least in, until the, uh, you have to give the crown back up next year. But um, tell me, speaking of the crown in, in uh, Atlantic City, you did something kind of cool uh, when you were uh, flying from Vermont to Atlantic City. Did you fly the New York Corridor? We did. We flew in the Corridor, and I was able to see um, the Statue of Liberty which I'm kind of ashamed to say, as an American, I have never seen it before. So this is my first time, and getting to experience it, like, in the air, being that close to it, was awesome. Um, we had a gorgeous day. It was 70 degrees. It was sunny. And there is a lot going on in that corridor. I'm going to be honest with you. There's helicopters and other planes and buildings. So it, it was a little stressful, but, you know, just making sure we're all keeping an eye out. Um, I did take two other pilots with me because they were checking out another airplane to see if they wanted to buy it. So that was the case. One would hop in the new airplane and one would fly the Piper Arrow home. But that corridor was pretty cool. So being able to start off my Miss America experience with this first-time experience of flying the Piper Arrow, then a first-time experience of seeing the Statue of Liberty was just, I mean, it was a lot of firsts for that two weeks in September, but it was awesome and very memorable. Well, I'm going to remind you about one thing we chatted about earlier, and it sounded like you had a little bit extra in your pocket that day, a little comfort item. I believe you told me that you were wearing a particular item from your granddad. Tell us about that. I was able to wear my grandfather's World War II bomber jacket, and it was so special for me. My grandpa, um, he died just a month or two before when I got certified as a pilot. And I know he would have just been so proud to see that. So um, getting a little curious over here. So for me to wear that down, uh, you know, I felt like I had him with me. I felt like he was protecting me. And it was kind of his way. I, I felt like him being with me that day. So it was, it was very special. I am sure that he would have been proud of you to see how you arrived uh, at the competition, um, you know, flying yourself uh, down that very busy New York corridor, which is a challenge on the easiest of days. And uh, but certainly special to see the Statue of Liberty by air, too. And that's something that I should recommend to other folks that are listening to us uh, via Skype on the uh, podcast here. They should check out that corridor if they can, if they're on the East Coast. Uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend it. That is something that is once in a lifetime, unless you're a pilot, then you can do it more than once. But it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, think a little bit back um, about some of your other experience flying different um, aircraft. You, we mentioned the Piper Arrow. Now, what about tailwheel, float plane, aerobatics, uh, any kind of experience doing any of that kind of aviation? Yeah, I, uh, I did aerobatic training with a tail dragger, and I was with um, Kathy Daly. She was uh, the actually the captain of the Blue Angel. So that was pretty cool to be able to fly with her. That day was really fun for me. My goal going up that day was to beat the class record of 19 spins. And I got up there and did about nine and started to get nauseous. So we had a kick out of the spin. But um, the aerobatic training was really fun for me. And this summer, I'm actually embarking on some seaplane training. So that'll be very cool. I live very close to Lake Champlain. So that'll be a um, very cool experience and a nice rating to have in your pocket as well. Aaron, I totally agree. I got my seaplane rating uh, a year ago in August, and it's a whole different way of flying. But especially if you have access to the water, it's a really neat way to go. And it, it taught me so much about basic aviation skills. We're talking, you know, visual flight rules and really uh, being at one with the aircraft. I think you'll get a lot out of that. I'm really, really excited. I've been in a seaplane once before. Um, and this, this particular seaplane sea was featured on Discovery Channel, actually, when they were doing a section on lake monsters. So you see a yellow plane in Vermont. That's the one I'll be flying. Um, and it's going to be pretty cool. Good deal. Well, look, I'm going to uh, ask you a little bit more about your, your flying, um, your earlier flying, and uh, think back a little bit and help us out with this. Uh, so who did you first take up when you first got your certificate, when you uh, first achieved that private certificate? Who was your first passenger? It was my mom, and um, my, it was my mom's father who who's the one I wore the bomber jacket of. So I think it was really special for her, and she, above all else, supported me and supported this dream of mine when I was just, you know, 17 years old. She made sure that I had all the materials that I needed. If I wanted to go out and buy my bright pink headset, she made sure that um, I was able to do so, and she spotted me with money, and she just was the biggest supporter and still is. So to take her up was 
my goal and it, it was one of the best days of my life just to, just to see how proud she was of me was was an incredible feeling i'm surrounded by such strong women in my life and my mom is definitely one of my role models being able to take her up was incredible well i am sure she was proud of you for that experience now was she a pretty good passenger oh yeah she was a great passenger she's definitely a sport um, she loves flying in general, so she didn't have any problems. She had full trust in me, and so she wasn't nervous. She didn't question anything, um, which, you know, that is usually what I get from other people that I'll take up. And it's funny, when I was going to Miss America, a lot of, you know, reporters wanted to talk to me because this is something that's never been done before. It's very cool. It's new. And I had someone ask me, a female asked me, well, did you take your boyfriend up with you? And for me, that I said, you know, that is the whole reason I'm doing this is to show people that women are just as capable and to show people that women, you know, can fly an airplane. They don't need a male figure to help them do it, especially at 22 years old. So for other people, they were shocked that, you know, a female flew herself in. They just couldn't wrap their head around like, oh, she just took a private jet. No, I was the one piloting the airplane. And that's how we had to work it to the media because they just weren't comprehending how big of a deal it was. No, and it's uh, 2017 as we record this, and I still cannot believe that uh, that, that women are faced with such challenges when, uh, when really uh, we should be well beyond that. I'm so glad that you pursued it, and you're, you're a huge role model and mentor for a lot of um, younger people that would be interested in aviation as well. Yeah, and that's exactly what I was trying to show. I wasn't really trying to get, you know, publicity, oh, look, look, here comes me flying in. It, it was really to show those young girls that I'm demonstrating something firsthand that is something that you can do. If I can do it, you can do it. And I was really just trying to show them that if you put your hard effort and work into it and you want something bad enough, you will get it. And that's what I did. I It was hard. It was challenging. Like every pilot knows there's definitely ups and downs when you're flying and when you're learning to fly. But you just got to push through. And that's the whole point of it is it's a challenge and it can be hard at times, but being able to empower yourself. Um, and that's what I did going to Miss America. So that's what I was really t- trying to show to those younger people that I educate. That is a good transition to another question I'm going to ask you. I'm going to put you on the spot for a minute, Aaron. A lot of students have plateaus that they encounter during training. Um, I know for me, it was trying to smooth out those landings right at the beginning. Yeah, think back. What, what, was, a, what was a learning plateau that you had to overcome or, or a special teaching moment that you could help us with? So, you know, being afraid of heights, of course, that was the first thing that took a little bit to get over. You know, I was scared on the ground. And then once I got in the airplane, I forgot about it. So it was kind of just remembering, you know, the feeling of when you're flying and not really focusing on, oh, my God, you're afraid of heights, you're afraid of heights. So it took me a while to get over that. So that first initial scare of being scared of heights. And then I think the second thing was, I was very stubborn in the fact that I didn't really want to take advice from other students in my class, especially my male counterparts. I thought, you know, I don't need their advice. I can just do this by myself. But, you know, once I realized that those people were there to support me and help me, it didn't become an issue anymore of, oh, they're, they're just trying to be better than me. So my advice to other students who are going through this is, you know, you can listen to what other people have to say because it might be something that you can use and it might be something that's helpful for you. You know, don't just take it because you don't like a certain person or they're male or whatever, that, whatever the case may be. Um, I Once I realized that, you know, these people are here to help and I listened to what they had to say and it made me a better pilot for it because I was able to listen. Um, and so it actually made me be better and, and it made me graduate the top of my class, both skill-wise and grade-wise, even though I was only 17 and the only female. So, I, I would just say, of course, you're going to encounter plateaus, and I'm sure those aren't going to be the only two that I encounter. There's going to be others throughout my training within each rating I take, but I'm just going to um, you know, rely on the support of my instructors and my fellow peers to kind of get me through it. Aaron, that is a really key takeaway that a lot of people can benefit by listening to your peers and other folks who are trying to coach you along. Uh, of course, take some of that with a grain of salt if they're fellow students like yourself, but but it could be that they have a good tip on how to get over some certain hurdle. So that's a key takeaway, mm-hmm. and I appreciate you uh, remembering that and uh, letting, us, letting us know about that. So what message would you like to send to uh, young people who might perhaps want to follow in your footsteps uh, a strong female aviator um, with uh, with a huge uh, amount of career opportunities available to you guys uh, these days. What is a message you'd like to send? Like I said earlier, if you work hard enough and you want something, you, you'll get it. And my advice is to stick with it. Like we just talked about, there's going to be 
certain things that you're going to face that are going to be challenging and hard, but you are going to, I think the big word that I've been using throughout this whole podcast is empower yourself. You know, by taking that challenge and facing it head on, you will empower yourself. And in the end, you're going to be a more skilled aviator for it. And I believe as members of the aviation community, we have a responsibility to support our young people who are coming up, both male and female, and show them, you know, how great it is to be a pilot and how great it is to be part of this great community where we all support each other. So I think we have a duty to to help support our young people that are coming up as well. That's fantastic. So let me remind people how they could uh, keep up with you um, if they want to check in on your on uh, what you're doing as Miss Vermont. Um, give us a couple of, uh, of web pages that they could uh, tap into and, and sort of follow you along this next year. Sure. So I'm, I'm on all the social media, of course. Uh, Facebook as Miss Vermont Erin Connor. I'm on Instagram at Miss America VP. And on all of those websites, you can find um, my platform and you can find certain projects that I'm working on aviation-wise and otherwise as Miss Vermont um, and other nonprofits that I volunteer at. So, And if you want to reach out to me, please do. I have always responded to every single message that I've gotten because I I believe in networking and I really believe in um, as many people I can meet, I I want to. So please reach out to me. I would love to hear from you. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you what, Aaron, Connor, um, you have been so gracious to us and you indeed reached out to me when I sent you a note um, and you were so helpful to come back for a repeat appearance with us on the podcast now that we've solved our technical issues. And um, (laughs) yeah, I'm so glad that you have the platform Tailwinds, you know, training a new generation of women scientists is so important to young people growing up these days and studying those STEM courses. I did, I did want to wrap up and ask, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to mention to us or to the podcast listeners at Hangar Talk? No, I think, I think we covered it all. But if I, if I remember something, David, I'll have to reach out to you. Um, but I just want to again say thank you so much for, for having me and thank you for everyone for listening. It's, it's so important to me, the work that I'm doing here in Vermont and I hope to kind of make it a nationwide movement to get more females in STEM and this movement of supporting our young people coming up in, in aviation. Well, Aaron Connor, Miss Vermont, you have been a pleasure hanging out with us on Hangar Talk today. Thank you so much for taking time out of your super, super busy schedule to reach out to us. And we hope you have a great day uh, today and continued uh, success in aviation and representing the state of Vermont. Hey, David, thank you so much. Take care. David, it's so cool to hear somebody talk about how they use aviation to really broaden people's horizons and teach them about all kinds of cool concepts. And, you know, the STEM thing is obviously really big right now. Um, so it's great to have really positive role models like that. Yeah, Aaron Connor is a great role model, especially for young females that are trying to pursue aviation. And the message is that she said, if, if she can do it, you can do it and put your nose to the grindstone and it can happen. Yeah, awesome. All right. So I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twomley. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you could find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and on Sporty's Takeoff app and on iTunes. All right. Thanks, David. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hanger Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.